if you're new with us and you're wondering what that noise is, it's Riley and William. They have Down syndrome and we love that they're in our church. So, you can rejoice when you hear them. All right, our gospel reading this morning, it ends on a terrible, mind-boggling note. The wholesale slaughter of every male baby and toddler in and around the village of Bethlehem. This is awful. All right, so if you have a Bible, find this, Matthew chapter 2. And, and when you pay close attention to this chapter, you'll recognize the way the story starts makes the way the story ends not a surprise. Notice how it started after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Some wise men from the east come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And there can't be two kings. So it says when Herod the king heard this, he was greatly troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And we know that when powerful leaders of powerful governments are troubled, heads roll. I mean, it, it's been playing out for all of human history. I want to draw your attention to two things from this passage. The first one is going to offend the Republicans, and the second one, the Democrats. So if you're a Republican, just sleep for the first half and stare at the Democrats during the second half, or vice versa. First of all, let's begin with something going on here that those of you who are deeply loyal to the Republican Party and have found yourself on the conservative side of Christianity and politics, there's something going on here that is going to challenge you potentially that you need to come to grips with. Notice, we have Herod the Great. He's a paranoid, power-hungry, unscrupulous king. And he recognizes something about Jesus that many conservative Christians over the last several hundred years have forgotten. He knows that Jesus is political and that he's a political threat it's obvious to Herod. Jesus is called king of the Jews. Herod never thinks for a moment that means only a spiritual kingdom. Only a thing that doesn't have anything to do with what he does. No, if Herod had thought that had nothing to do with the real world of politics that he was involved in, he would have yawned. But it was because King Herod was told about another king that Herod reacts. He never separates religion and Jesus from politics. There can't be two kings. The birth of Jesus Christ is God throwing down the gauntlet to Herod and all earthly rulers like him. Herod was right to be troubled. There was nothing safe going on with the birth of Jesus when it came to Herod. 
Look at the painting on the front of our worship guide. Here is St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. That's him on the right. And he's rebuking the Roman Emperor Theodosius I for the massacre of Thessalonica that had occurred a few months earlier, the year 390 AD. Here's what happened. In April of 390, there was a military commander stationed in Thessalonica by the name of Butherick. He arrested one of his soldiers because the soldier had committed a homosexual act. The, th- the citizens of Thessalonica had no problem with homosexuality like the vast majority of the Greco-Roman world. This was not a problem. What they had a problem with was somebody being arrested for it. So they rose up. And they demanded that Butherick, the general, it wasn't a general, the military leader, they, they demanded that Butherick release the soldier. Butherick refused. And the citizens revolted, and in the revolt, they killed Butherick. When the emperor, Theodosius, heard about this, he sent his army to Thessalonica to attack the city. Now, right before the army arrived, uh, Theodosius, the emperor, changed his mind. And he sent a messenger to the army telling them, don't march on the city. Unfortunately, the messenger was too late. And when the soldiers got to Thessalonica, they treated it as an enemy city. They massacred the city. 7,000 people were slaughtered, men, women, and children. One ancient historian said, without even having a judicial trial or sentence, like ears of wheat in the time of harvest, they were cut down. Now, Ambrose is the bishop of Milan, and Theodosius lives in Milan at the time. When Ambrose heard about this, he walked out of the city and he refused to lead worship and to celebrate Eucharist in a city where an emperor lived who committed that massacre. One day, Theodosius, the emperor, found out a church that Ambrose was in leading worship that Sunday, preaching, celebrating Eucharist, and he went to it. And Ambrose met him at the door. And that's what this painting is of. And he told him, you cannot enter this church and you cannot have communion because you're a murderer. You've got to repent. So this bishop stands up to this emperor and this is what he does. You see, Ambrose understood what Herod understood. You can't separate Christianity and politics. Ambrose understood that Christians cannot transcend politics. You can't keep Christianity out of the pulpit. And you can't keep politics out of the pulpit. Look at the verse of Scripture on the front of our worship God, just over the painting. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Who's supposed to warn kings? Who's supposed to call them to account? The people of God. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's what Ambrose is telling the emperor. You see, here in our modern world, since the the modern liberal state was born in the Enlightenment, 
the, the typical liberal position has tended to substitute politics for faith. And the typical conservative Christian position has kept politics out of the pulpit. And both are wrong. Both are a massive mistake. If you are a Christian, avoiding political discussions and engagement is casting a vote for the status quo. We know this in America because that is the mistake that too many churches made in the early 19th century when they refused to speak out against slavery because they thought they should keep politics out of the pulpit. And by doing that, they indirectly supported slavery. But Ambrose knew different. He was compelled by Psalm 2 and Matthew 2 and hundreds of other passages of Scripture Ambrose knew, like the psalmist knew, and like Matthew knew, that Christians must be politically engaged because political engagement is a fundamental way we love our neighbors. Whether our neighbors are black or white, whether they are Democrats or Republicans or Christians or Muslim, we love our neighbor through political engagement. It was the failure to politically engage that the church in the deep south committed a sin against the second greatest commandment. They didn't love their neighbor. To work for better schools or for a justice system not weighted against the poor or to end racial segregation requires more than prayer. It requires political engagement. James told us what kind of person it is that just said, yeah, go and be well fed and that's all they do. That's my first point. Something we must see and learn from this passage of Scripture, from Matthew 2 and from Psalm 2, it's time we stop trying to keep faith and politics separate. All right, Republicans, you can wake up now. Democrats, a second thing we need to see here, it is wrong to kill babies. It's wrong. Matthew 2 clearly holds up for us the horror of a king killing children, toddlers, and infants. What Herod does is terrible. It strikes us as the most callous of crimes. Our hearts revolt against it. It's wrong to kill babies, including babies in wombs. That's what Christians have always said. Did you know that Christians have always been against abortion from the very beginning? Do you know that abortion was common in the ancient world? Very few people had a problem with it. The academics didn't have a problem with it. The historians didn't have a problem with it. The physicians didn't have a problem with it. They all accepted it. In Athens, that paragon of cultured um, city, civic life, it was alive with artists and poets and architects and philosophers and starving and dying children in Athens were the object of humor. Plato and Aristotle both taught that killing deformed children was necessary for society to be healthy. But Christians always and from the beginning, stood apart from the wider culture on this issue, and they denounced abortion not simply as inhumane, but as murder. From the early church all the way through to the 19th century, Christians were consistent and con constant in their 
opposition to abortion at any stage of pregnancy because they said it's murder. The child in the womb is one of us from the moment of conception. Do you know the earliest Christian document outside of the Bible? It's called the Didache, and it comes from around the early 2nd century. It explicitly addresses and condemns abortion as murder. Now, if you believe in a woman's right to choose abortion, I want to beg you to listen to me for just a moment. I'm going to tell you the Christian argument against abortion. It goes like this. At the heart of the Christian opposition to abortion is the fact that in Jesus of Nazareth, God has lived and he has redeemed the entirety of the human life from its very beginning all the way to his death. That he was one of us in the darkness of the womb And he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. That's the essence of the Christian argument against abortion. In parts of the Bible, like Psalm 139, we learn that God does not value human achievement more than human potential. He cares even for the weakest and the least biologically developed among us. In fact, before God... None of us has any claim to achievement that we can boast about. We are all fetuses before God. We all stand with confidence before God, not because of what we've done, but only because the whole of our life has been taken up into the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yes, we Christians, we know that when fertilization occurs, when the sperm and the ovum join to form the zygote, we know that zygote doesn't look much like us. But even the earliest embryo is more than just a featureless collection of cells. The advancing knowledge of embryological development has proven to us that the beginnings of the mammalian body plan are laid down at the time of fertilization. Where the head and the feet will sprout is established within hours of the egg and the sperm uniting. From fertilization, the embryo is an integrated, self-developing organism capable, if all goes well, of the continued development that characterizes human life. And we are right to react with awe and wonder at the mystery of its individual existence. Sure. I know. We know that at the earliest stages of a pregnancy, the, the zygote doesn't look much like us now. But it looks very much like us then. Sure, at the earliest stages of a pregnancy, the baby lacks the capacities we take for granted as adults. But then so did you and so did I when we were at that stage of our life. And we might be, again, at a future stage of our development. I'll say it again. The issue for Christians when it comes to abortion has always been crystal clear. If any Christian today has become unsure about the immorality of abortion, it's because of pressure from the surrounding culture, not anything from the Bible. The child, 
born to Mary. Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh. And so God has taken the whole course of our bodily development into his own life and knowing that even before we have the capacity for speech, the Spirit intercedes for us. We know that what it takes to make a human is not what you're capable of doing. The only qualification for being a human is are you begotten of human parents? That's all it takes to be a human. If someone can't speak or defend themselves, or if someone loses consciousness and self-awareness and the ability to feel pain or the capacity for relationships or self-motivated activity or any of the other arguments about personhood that they are used to defend abortion, if someone is not viable and cannot live outside of support, whatever quality they lack, we Christians refuse to accept. That, as an argument, someone without those vital capacities has not stopped being human. They're simply the weakest and the least advantaged members of the human community. At every stage of its development, the fetus is one of us, deserving of the dignity of all of us. The life of the child in the womb is God's creation. And that child is part of the world Christ came to redeem. The worth and the dignity of a child is not dependent on how much someone wants him or doesn't want him. This is the Christian argument. In 1994, Bill... President Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton attended the National Prayer Breakfast and the keynote speaker was Mother Teresa. And she took the occasion to talk about abortion. She said, The greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child. It is a direct murder of the innocent child murdered by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, How can we tell other people not to kill someone? By abortion, the the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take responsibility at all for the child he's brought into the world. Any country, Mother Teresa says, that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love. It is teaching its people to use any violence necessary to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. You can be a Republican and a Christian. But the Republican Party is not the Christian Party. It's got many, many wicked parts to it. And you can be a Democrat and be a Christian, but the Democrat Party is not the Christian Party. It supports the killing of babies. There is no clean place to stand. We need people in both parties who will own up to the dark evil in their party and work in their party for the betterment of the the nation. 
There's no righteous vote. Whoever you voted for, you needed to repent of. But there's also no political less place to stand. Both parties have blood on their hands. Now, about 10 minutes ago, I asked those of you who believe that a woman should have the right to choose abortion or not. I asked you to give me a few minutes to explain the Christian view of abortion. Thank you if you did that. Thanks. I want to talk now to any woman in the room who's had an abortion and to any man in the room who has supported an abortion. Every person who has tried to save himself or herself by doing away with the child who is unwanted, you have given yourself over to the destructive powers of the world in an attempt to avoid them. And you, had act, you have acted as if those powers are worthy of worship, as if they could save you. You have taken your stand beside King Herod. Now, what do you do about it? Those of you in the room who've had abortions, what do you do with all of this guilt and all of this shame? Well, let's go back to the story of Emperor Theodosius. After Ambrose met him at the door of the church and rebuked him for murder, historians tell us that he returned to his palace eight months of weeping under the weight of his guilt. And then he asked if he could meet with Ambrose, and he confessed his sins. And Ambrose pronounced forgiveness, because that's what God offers murderers. And then he passed a law requiring that in cases of the death penalty from now on in the Roman Empire, there had to be a 30-day lag before execution. So he confessed And then he did political things to help avoid this kind of tragedy again. Abortion is murder. It is terrible and horrific. And if you've been a part of it, the first step to dealing with it is to take responsibility for your guilt. You must recognize that you have a weight of guilt that you can't do anything about. It's on you. You're stained by it. You must recognize that the help you need has to come from outside of yourself. You need to be forgiven by God. And you need to accept His forgiveness. Avoiding responsibility is not how you find healing. Your enemy is not me pronouncing the guilt of your action. Your enemy is your own denial of your guilt. Even if you did it ignorantly. Even if you did it not knowing that it was murder. Confession is the path to healing. This is what Christians say about all sins. It's what we knelt and asked God to do. Forgive us. One of the greatest gifts the church has to offer is the right of confession. Come and see me. If you've had an abortion, if you've participated in it, come see me. God has given me to you as a gift. I am your priest. You go to your doctor for your flu 
and your pneumonia and your broken bones. You go to your priest for your sins. That's what, that's what God has given me to you. And I'll work with you and lead you through a rite of confession so that you can confess. And I'll pronounce over you the forgiveness that God offers. God offers great, kind, tender mercy. If you are pregnant and you're considering abortion, you showed up on this Sunday when this was a passage that was read. The slaughter of the babies. I want to beg you. As you're thinking about abortion, think about love. That's what Mother Teresa said. Remember that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave even his own life to love us. So when you, a mother, are thinking of abortion, let me, let us, let our church help you to love even until it hurts your plans for the future. Even until it hurts your your free time, let us help you to love, to respect the life of your child, to love your neighbor as yourself, including and especially your closest neighbor. If you're the father of a child and you're considering being a part of this, you must learn to love until it hurts. Now, look at Matthew chapter 2 verse 10. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Don't be like Herod. Be like the Magi. All of us, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, all of us need Jesus. So come to him by whatever route you can. And bring the best gifts you can find. Let's pray.